Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, hopefully you know by now that uh, October 2017 is a big month. We celebrate this month something that changed world history, something that uh, put all of Western history on a new path. Now, I know that some of you might be tempted to say it was the Astros' victory last night, which was extremely impressive, especially the end. I love that little man on Tuesday. But no, if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that this month, October 2017, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Two weeks ago, we looked at communion and how the Reformation changed our perceptions of communion. Last week, we looked at the corruptions of the church at the time uh, and what that might say about uh, the church today. And this morning, this Sunday, we change our focus. We shift to another pillar of the Reformation, something that was as critical as anything else, and that is the authority of the Bible. Now, if you were a Christian in the Middle Ages, chances are you would not have been able to read the Bible. You also probably wouldn't have owned a copy because they were all hand-copied out on parchment, which was very expensive and time-consuming. Plus, it was all in Latin. And so unless you could read Latin, it wasn't much good to you. In fact, when you went to services, everything was in Latin. So unless you could understand Latin, you couldn't understand the passages from Scripture that were being read. If you were an average person in the Middle Ages, your introduction to Scripture would be mostly through the images that you might see in a cathedral church, a parish church, Uh, or other places around where you lived. And what that meant was that those who were interpreters of the Bible were those who were in monasteries and also in early universities. By the high Middle Ages, monasteries had quite a bit of wealth. They were spread throughout Western Europe, and you had the rise of the first universities, university in Oxford, in Paris, in Bologna, and eventually all throughout Europe. And it was these university scholars who were in touch with one another that worked out Uh, detailed systems of theology. If you want to read painstaking, systematic theology, read people like Anselm of Canterbury or Duns Scotus or William of Ockham or Peter Abelard or the great Thomas Aquinas. This was the period of medieval scholasticism. Every detail, every theological detail you might wonder about, you might be curious about, they had an answer for you. Including, again, to, to show you how detailed they are, one of the uh, one of the more outrageous, in my mind, sort of scholastic disputations was uh, what is the theological value of Jesus' foreskin as the only part of Jesus that's still left on earth? They actually were debating these things. Uh, I know, Terry, I feel the same way. So it's unsurprising that in the 15th century, in the 15th century, uh, we saw a change in the intellectual environment of Western Europe. This was prompted uh, by a rise in wealth of the middle class and increasing levels of literacy by the beginning of the printing press. It was prompted by the decline of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire in in Constantinople, which led a number of Greek scholars to flee to the West. Uh, And again, their first port of call was in Italy. For the first time, people were introduced to the works of Plato, 
Uh, they were encouraged to read in Greek, which had not been something that was done before. People started to look at the great monuments of Roman history and say, wow, we want to get back to that. Hence the term Renaissance. It was a sense of a rebirth of going back to ancient Rome, to the glories that were Rome. And one of the rallying cries for this humanist movement was to go back to the sources. Go to the sources themselves. Forget the scholastic disputations. Go straight to the sources. As I say in Latin, ad fontes. Go to the sources. And this is the context that's crucial for understanding Martin Luther. Because Luther's program at the University of Wittenberg that he was implementing in the 15-teens was a humanist program for theology. At the University of Wittenberg, they were not studying the scholastic theologians. They were not disputing these small details of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Instead, they were going back to the sources. They were reading the Bible in Greek. The curriculum was focused on the Bible, on trying to interpret the Bible. This is what it was all about because he was a good humanist doing what all humanists should be doing. And indeed, in 1517, in October 1517, when Luther had those famous 95 theses, he wrote those 95 theses mostly as a pastor and a scholar, not as some radical. He had people that he was preaching to every Sunday who came to him in joy that they just had their sins forgiven because they had given a certain amount of money, and this appalled Luther. He thought it was completely wrong. And when he was writing out his arguments, he was doing what he thought a scholar like him should do. Argue from the sources about what was right and what was wrong. And in fact, in 1518, the next year, when word came from Rome that he was being charged with heresy, his his response was shock. He was saying, well, how am I being charged with heresy? I'm just doing my job as a scholar. I'm supposed to be questioning things. That's what scholars do. And again, when he went to these initial disputations with people sent from Rome, usually Dominicans, and of course the great Dominican scholar Thomas Aquinas is the uh, sort of great uh, high point of medieval scholasticism, no wonder why the Dominicans were so frustrated, but these Dominicans would confront Luther, and Luther would say, all right, let's get into a good scholarly debate. And more often than not, they said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. We need you to recant what you've written. And he'd be like, That's the, I can't do that. You know, again, let's, let's go to the Bible. Let's argue this out. Let's go back to the sources, like a good humanist. But the more he was pressed, the more Luther doubled down on this notion of going back to the sources. And hence the rise of his rallying cry in the Reformation of sola scriptura, that only by the Bible are we saved. Only by the Bible do we find where the keys are to salvation. This was a later development, after he was pressed. And then again, the high point of this is in 1521, at the Diet of Worms, here he is before this imperial diet, this imperial council, included all the great princes of Germany, including the Holy Roman Emperor himself, the most powerful man in the world, calling him out. And again, as the story goes, there was a stack of his writings that was put on the table, and a question was put to him, it's like, do you, do you renounce these? And again, he knew that the consequence of not renouncing them was being charged as a heretic, and, of course, the penalty for being a heretic was being burnt at the stake. This is, this, the stakes were high here. This is, this is a big deal. And Luther said, you know, I, I, he said, unless you can prove to me that these are wrong based on disputations of Scripture, I simply can't disown them because that would be going against the Word of God. I can't do it. And his famous line of, here I stand, I, I 
can't, I can do no other. Sola Scriptura. You can hear echoes of this, a, a, letter, we, a letter of Jude that Bill read earlier. For I implore you to contend for the faith. I exhort you to contend for the faith that was once handed down to all the saints. That's what Luther's doing here. He's contending for the faith that was once handed down for all the saints. All, for all the saints, this, this faith, this apostolic faith, that's what he's contending for, that we find in Scripture. And then the even more important thing happened, though. This is where the story gets interesting. After the Diet of Worms, Luther goes into exile, or at least into hiding, into the castle of Wartburg. And while he's there, he takes out his Hebrew, and he takes out his Greek, Old and New Testaments, and he translates the Bible into German. Now, this translation is so impactful that uh, people, mostly Lutherans, uh, call Luther the father of the German language. Just as you think of the King James Bible in English, how important the King James Bible is for the use of idiom, the use of phrase uh, that you see throughout literature, throughout Western literature for hundreds of years afterwards, the same was true of, of Luther's German translation of the Bible. His idioms, his phraseology, the way he used words uh, had a huge impact on the formation of the German language because his Bible was so popular. After he translated it into German, it got printed and spread all throughout Germany. If the Bible alone is going to be the source of authority, well, let's get Bibles out to people. And in the process, he unleashed a monster. <laughs> You ever run across those people on the street who are preaching your, their, repent, the kingdom of God is drawn near? You hear them bellowing out one Bible verse after another after another. If you're lucky and you get close enough, you can have one of those pamphlets thrust in your hand and you look at it and inevitably it's a picture of someone burning in, uh, in hell and you sort of quickly stuff it in your pocket and, and walk away before putting it in the nearest trash can. That ever happened to you? Well, you get to thank Martin Luther for that person. As soon as you say, hey, here's the Bible, read it for yourself. It's the sole authority by which you're saved. There are 66 books in the Bible. You could pull a lot of different positions out of that Bible. This past week I was looking. Do you realize we have some 9,000 different denominations in the world? Some estimates are even higher, into the 30,000s or more. Why do we have so many denominations? Because some person will read some part of the Bible and say, well, this is, this is the most important part. I'm sticking by this. And someone else will say, oh, no, you're wrong. And then they split and they form their own factions based on some reading of Scripture. And then, of course, a couple generations later, they forget even what the original dispute was about. But it doesn't matter. They're different denominations and they're firm in it. I wonder how many of those 9,000 are Baptist denominations. <laughs> the Baptists have this wonderful capacity to split into different groups. Luther, thank you, Luther. But of course, this, uh, this splintering, this, uh, this people reading the Bible for themselves and making, drawing their own conclusions had profound impact even in Luther's own day. There was a student uh, at University of Wittenberg with Luther named Thomas Munzer, and he read through the Bible, and he was saying, hey, what's important here is the testimony of the Holy Spirit that's in yourself. And one of the things that, 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 that stirred him was the fundamentally democratic nature of this. Didn't matter whether you were a prince or a priest or anything else. 
you were just like everyone else before God. Radical democracy. In a highly aristocratic and hierarchical world, this is dangerous. And he kept preaching this. At the same time, there was a lot of discontent among uh, the common people, the peasant classes, so to speak, of Central Europe. In the 15th century, because of, the, uh, of, of a mining boom, you had inflation uh, like never before. That, of course, hurt people who were farmers. You also had a great number of wars that were going on, wars in Italy, wars with the Turks. Every war that was fought was fought on the backs of uh, these peasants who had more and more taxes levied on them. And so finally, in 1524, you had this spark, and you had this massive wave of peasant rebellions throughout central Germany. Thomas Munzer became one of the leaders of it. He was justified by their reading of Scripture. Some 100,000 people, it's estimated, died in the repression of these peasant revolts, which Luther was dead set against. The authority of Scripture... You let that genie out of the bottle. You oftentimes don't know where it's going to go. Again, you look at Munzer. He was probably reading the letter of Jude just, just the same way as Luther was. He was contending for the faith once handed down for all the saints. And not only that, what, is, what does Jude say? Oh, don't worry. There are going to be people who are arguing with you. There are going to be ungodly people slipping in, trying to mess you up and steer you incorrectly. For Munzer, that was Luther. For Luther, it was Munzer. Who's right? But I have to say, there's, uh, for me personally, uh, as I was reading through this and thinking through this, there's something that's, there's, there's a deeper challenge for us other than differing interpretations and divisions we might have. There's a deeper challenge for us with lifting up the authority of Scripture. And that is we actually have to listen to Scripture. You see, in the old Roman Catholic model of things, uh, things were generally laid out for people. It's like, okay, you've got the holy people who are the religious orders. Those people can be the saints, fine. You, as an average person, are expected to be an average person. Here are the list of mortal sins, the things you're never supposed to do. Here are the list of venial sins, which, you know, you'll do occasionally and just seek forgiveness for it. But there's pretty much a straightforward path of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But with Protestants, they give you the Bible. You've got to read that. Have you ever ever read Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Famous German theologian and scholar. Uh, In the 1930s, he wrote his most famous work, The Call of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer's big point in the book is he complains about cheap grace. He's like, people come to church on Sundays and they basically get a free pass. They don't actually live up to the mandates in the Bible. They don't actually good biblical servants. When Jesus says, give to whoever asks, they're like, well, yes, but not really. Uh, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, it's like, well, okay, I turn the other, but not really. Uh, when uh, Deuteronomy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's like, well, okay, but Hitler's good too. I mean, there's these, there's these, these demands that come from the Bible. You know, it's easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Yeah, but if we make the needle really big, eye of the needle really big, and we think of a really, really tiny camel, we can make it work. I'm telling you, it can happen. This is one of the problems of, the, of, of lifting up the authority of Scripture. The Scripture's got a pretty, uh, a pretty intense set of expectations that are laid upon us. When was the last time you actually read through some of them? It can be intimidating to read through it. I was thinking, again, as I was wrestling with this stuff this past week, I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, let's say I, 
Again, I, I, I put myself as number, guilty party number one. Let's say I were to be like, okay, you've got to follow this better than you have been, John. What are you going to do? I'm like, why am I not at city council every Tuesday getting up and saying, why aren't you changing your policies around housing so that we can have more affordable housing here? You, most of you on city council claim to be Christians. You're not being very good Christians. And then next week, go and say the same thing. Like, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You go to church on Sundays, but you're not actually fighting for more affordable housing. Go to the next week until, the, until they finally ban me from city council because they're sick of hearing me talk. Why am I not doing that? That's what Munzer did. Thomas Munzer was like, hey, I'm willing to put my life on the line for this. This, is, this matters. I'm willing to do this. I'm not at city council every Tuesday. We live in the wealthiest country of the world, and yet we can't provide basic health care for our citizens. Some people don't even have access to health care. Think about it. This is a basic, this is something that was listed as a fundamental right in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights back in 1948. This was a basic human right, access to health care. And that doesn't, that's not true in the United States. And even people with health care, you can have a major procedure and the amount of bills you still have can bankrupt you. Happens all the time in the U.S. And yet I'm not constantly waving signs about this and going crazy. And I read the Bible. There's this, this is intense stuff. Luther had a lot to say about the Bible. And he when, he, when he, when he talks about biblical interpretation, Luther was someone who was very aware of the fact that the Bible could be interpreted in many different ways. He knew that, and he, he spoke about it honestly. So he wasn't one of these people who said all parts of the Bible are equally valid. In fact, if it was up to him, he would have cut out the letter of James and Revelation. But Luther was someone who was very keen on what biblical interpretation was about. And he, he, he writes in some of these stuff on biblical interpretation. He said, he said, yes, our goal is to mold our lives on the life of Jesus. But that's step number two in the process for Luther. He said, when you approach the scriptures, you have to realize, you have to figure out what, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Everything for Luther in the Bible should be interpreted in light of the gospel, in the light of the good news, in light of the incarnate word in Jesus. That should be the interpretive lens for reading the entire Bible. Once you hear the promise of the good news, then, and only then, can you get to the other part. So, uh, since, this, since these sermons are very didactic in <laughs> this thing, I figured it was a good time to give you homework for, uh, for next week. Because I know all you adults out there miss your homework assignments. And the homework is simple. The homework is, what is this good news? If someone were to ask you in the street, what is the gospel... What is the heart of the gospel? What is the kerygma? What is the proclamation? What is that promise it's given? What is that through which you interpret the rest of the Bible? What is that for you? What's the good news? When you come into church, you think about Jesus, you think about God, you think about Christianity, what's the good news? If someone were to ask you, what's the good news, what would you say? There are certain rote answers that you could give, but we're, uh, we're sort of good UCC congregational folks. And so we want you to think for yourself. And this is the 21st century, and maybe answers that were true in the 16th century aren't true today in the 21st century. And so I want you to think, in this next week, what is the good news for you? What's the gospel? What's that proclamation? I invite you to open up your Bibles. Be good Protestants. Open the Bibles. See what it says. See what you find in there. What makes you feel uncomfortable? Why? 
Rather than just focusing on certain passages you know, find a new passage you haven't read before. Do that this week. Because next week, for the sermon next week, I'll get a chance to give you my answer to that question.